Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 246, A Rough Wooing. Before I start, let me briefly remind you that I am a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a smorgasbord of independent podcasters, and this week I can announce that Agora has a new podcast by Royfield Brown and David Crowther. This is called The Things That Made England, and I have to confess that I hesitate just a little bit to recommend it to you, but look... Both Royfield and I are actually rather proud to be English, while not being blind to its faults. This podcast is therefore a bit of an indulgence, a self-indulgence, a discussion of the things that we think form an important part of what makes England. We might cover things as diverse as serious history stuff like 1066, the Constitutions of Oxford, or it might be Scar, the one musical form to which every Englishman can dance, or the Flag of St George, or whatever, we have a list as long as your arm. It's a 15 to 20 minute discussion. It starts on the 23rd of April, which is, of course, St. George's Day. And I can't really claim that it ever gets above the level of a pub chat, but I commend it to you at that level. And also, you do get to vote, if you wish, on whether we've made the right decisions or not. So check it out on iTunes or through Acast, or I'll cautiously put a link on my website for you. That name again, The Things That Made England. Last week, we spent on the internal struggles of the realm, the internal struggle that will obsess the political nation until Henry's death. This week, we're off to visit sunny Scotland and to France. So, it is a problem with middle age, or shall we say, latish middle age, that there is a terrible temptation to revisit the world of your youth, to take out again the brushed denim jacket with white snake carefully embroidered on the back, to try to wash away your worries that you haven't seen your toes for longer than is comfortable. But, if you're a king and you are no longer in the prime, and you've just had to cut your wife's head off, what do you do? Well, you get married again, of course, or, and, you go to war. 
Now, of course, the main object of Henry's ambitions had always been France. But that was the place where, since Edward III, the glory of English kings was to be won. And despite his relative lack of success, or at least relative to Edward III and Henry V, Henry had been able to bask in a relatively benign diplomatic situation for most of his reign, in that Francis and Charles V kept trying to claw each other's eyes out. Only once, so far, had the two of them seriously patched things up, and that had been very alarming indeed. England had looked seriously exposed for a while. But by 1542, happily things on the continent were all back to normal, when in July the two of them were back at it again, in the romantically named Fourth Habsburg-Valois War. Now, after at least 30 podcasts or so, you might be forgiven for thinking that we're well into double figures by now, but nope, it's just four. I plan a European catch-up at some point, by the way, but for the moment, let me also mention an interesting development in the world of European diplomacy, the alliance between France and the Ottoman Empire. This scandalised Christendom. Alliance between the most Christian kingdom of France and the infidel Turk was jaw-droppingly outrageous. Francis I had started playing with the idea after the disaster of his defeat and capture in 1525, and by 1538 the two kingdoms had collaborated against the Holy Roman Empire multiple times. This is not a little thing. The tide of Ottoman conquest had rolled over Hungary after the disaster at Mohash in 1526, right up to the walls of Vienna in 1529 and 1532. The idea of the French furiously stabbing the bulwark of Christendom in the back while they faced an immediate existential challenge on land and on sea was just gobsmacking to everyone. And in 1542, as Francis activated a plan that involved four invasions of the empire from France and Denmark, the alliance was once again activated, with Suleiman the Magnificent promising 60,000 men and 150 galleys against the empire. In 1543, the two would jointly besiege Nice. So, you know, Henry, Luther, Calvin, not the only folks dismembering the unity of Christendom. Anyway, that's his maybe. In response, Charles did what anyone would do, and he approached Henry the heretic. And discussions kicked off that would lead to alliance by February 1543. One of the significant diplomatic wrinkles in the discussion was Henry's styling. Not his hair, since apart from Edward, Henry now had no hair and was basically bald which of course saved on barber's bills. But really, it wasn't acceptable for Charles V to describe Henry as supreme head of the church. He'd have received a larruping from the Pope, if nothing else, even if Charles himself had been able to live with it, which he wasn't. Meanwhile, Francis I was reported to be very worried and, you know, feeling bad about his alliance with Suleiman. His mathering was presumably to stop the Pope from shouting at him, but gave the opportunity for Henry for a reasonable gag when he said that whoever Francis chose to give him absolution, he and Charles would impose the penance. Ha <laughs> ha! It's a gag which I doubt went down well in either Spain or Rome. It's actually more likely to have given Francis I a bit of a giggle. There was another problem, though. The back door. As you'll know, in windy weather, it's important to shut the back door before you open the front, because otherwise it'll be blowing a gale through your house and who knows what will get broken. The back door in this case was Scotland, Scotland the Brave. Let us go north, over the bleak glory of the fells of Northumberland and the majestic hills and green valleys of the Scottish borders and talk about King James of Scotland, the fifth of that name. The Scottish monarchy had had its dynastic problems through its history, 
famously with the broken body of Alexander III found lying at the foot of the cliff in 1282. But when James IV died at Falloden in 1513, he left just one heir in James V, who was but one year old when his dad died, and therefore there was a very long minority. This is not the place to go through the troubled life of his mother, Margaret Tudor, Henry's sister, but relationships between mother and son were tricky, as Margaret constantly tried to gain some control over political life, while hampered by a rather incontinent personal one. Plus, Margaret was consistently pro-English, rarely a recommendation for popularity in Scotland. Anyway, by the time Margaret died in 1541, she had won some sort of rehabilitation through the strength of her relationship with James's wife, Mary of Guise. I am going to attempt now some sort of survey of the key figures in Scottish politics in the hope that the investment I ask each of you to make will pay dividends at some point, since we are in a period of, shall we say, active relations with England. Though you should be aware that shares can go up or down, so let's hope the dividend is good. Hopefully you have a pen and paper ready. One of the factions was that of Douglas. When I spoke of an incontinent personal life, Margaret Tudor's marriages after the death of James IV were exactly what I was thinking of. And she married first a member of the Douglas family, the Earl of Angus, with whom she had a relationship that could not have appeared in an advert for washing up liquid. Margaret managed to get a divorce from Angus in 1527 after a lot of trying, but the Douglas faction would remain a force in Scottish politics, often in support of a pro-English strategy again. Margaret and Angus's daughter would be the redoubtable Margaret Douglas, a firm Catholic, even in the reign of Elizabeth, in a period where a group of Catholics together are in danger of being referred to as a nest. Their son, Darnley, would be a future husband of the most famous Mary Queen of Scots. James Hamilton, the Earl of Arran, was a descendant of King James II and therefore the heir to the throne until James V should produce children. At the start of the story, he's Protestant and quite pro-English, but try not to hold on too hard to that fact, for that will change. Then we have Matthew Stuart, also a man with a claim to the Scottish throne, should James V die without an heir, since he was, like Arran, a descendant of James II. He also spent much of his youth in England. He shall be known as Diego. No, he won't. He'll be referred to as the Earl of Lennox, for such was his name. And then a fourth person you need to know about is Cardinal David Beaton. Unsurprisingly, he's Catholic. The Pope would have been a bit upset with him wandering around being Cardinal. If he wasn't, it would have been a Cardinal error. Beaton was very much in favour of the French alliance, not necessarily from a love of croissant, though that would be reason enough, but because the pro-English camp were beginning to be associated, of course, with evangelicalism. So, enough set up, just to check. We have a Douglas, who shall be referred to as the Earl of Angus, married for a while to the Queen Mum. We have the Earl of Arran, currently Protestant but not for long, the Earl of Lennox and Cardinal Beaton, the French advocate. These people need to be put into that greatest love of the management consultant, the 2x2 grid, a Boston box or whatever they're called these days. The axes of our 2x2 are Protestant Catholic on one axis and pro-English to pro-French on the other. Henry wanted supporters in Scotland who were down their left-hand bottom corner, pro-English, Protestant. The history of what becomes known as the rough wooing is the history of most of the political class of the Scots moving to the top right, pro-French, remaining Catholic. When James V was but a tiny little boy in 1517, the Scots and the French signed the Treaty of Rouen, part of the grand tradition of the Old Alliance. 
spelt with an A. Twenty years later, in 1537, the 25-year-old James completed a diplomatic coup and a glittering marriage when he married Madeleine, the daughter of the King of France in Paris, in a magnificent ceremony, where Francis pushed the boat firmly and forcefully out. But sadly, Madeleine wasn't well, and she died almost as soon as she arrived back in Scotland. James's heart remained firmly with the French alliance, still with an A, and in France he'd noticed a lady called Mary, daughter of the Duke of Guise. He thought she was nice, so when Madeleine died he said, OK, I'll marry her now then. Mary was initially not so keen, not because there was anything wrong with the cut of James's jib. His jib was both fine and even occasionally dandy. But just because she'd only recently lost her own husband and a younger son, and she'd have to leave behind her little three-year-old nipper if she married James. But Cardinal Beaton came over to France. He was persuasive. The deal was negotiated, and marry James she did, and she proceeded to get on well with her mother-in-law, Margaret, and bring her back into the body politic before Margaret's death. She also gave birth to two boys with James, which should have been plenty, but tragically was not, because both died young. Nonetheless, in 1542, she was once more pregnant. So, third time lucky, as they say. Now, we last heard about James when, in 1541, he'd stood his uncle up at York, his uncle being Henry VIII. Henry had been giving his nephew some friendly advice about becoming nice and Protestant because, you know, the Pope was the Antichrist, and anyway, dissolving the monasteries was a nice little earner. James was not interested in becoming a Protestant, and also he had no heir at the time. No one was going to risk him going to York, nice though York is, and having him captured by the English king or, I don't know, falling down a hole on the way or something. But it undoubtedly raised the temperature... No one likes being publicly stood up, and between kings, it can be a matter for war. Henry gets most of the grief for the coming trouble. I say most. He gets it absolutely 360 degrees for the coming troubles, but this wasn't particularly well handled by the Scots either. So now, French diplomacy has a key priority to cause war, discord, strife, pain and despair between England and Scotland so that England can't invade France because of that backdoor thing I mentioned. Henry's objective is to close the back door and firmly to, however it happens, make sure the Scots are not going to stab him in the back. Despite standing Henry up, the Scots were not keen to have a war with Henry either, so at the conference between diplomats in 1542 that finally went ahead, they agreed with Henry's demands and agreed that James would come to England at Christmas. Two things are reasonably clear about this. Number one, that Henry's demands were both extraordinarily aggressive and far too excessive. Number two, the Scots were fibbing. They had no intention of complying. Along with the news of the Battle of Haddon Rig in August 1542, where the Scots gave the English a good trouncing and a skirmish, but, you know, a win is a win, and captured the English commander, Henry was now inclined to force the issue even more, and he demanded his commander back from Haddon Rig. Forrest, give me back my legions. Now, Henry isn't a terrible diplomat, and in the Renaissance cut and thrust with the Empire and France in his later years, he more than holds his own, but here it's generally agreed he's overbearing and bullying, and that doesn't help, and creates more of a situation than need be. Though it's not clear either that keen though they were to avoid a war, the Scots were ever going to abandon a French alliance. However, as the Scots searched for excuses at York, Henry sent an army over the border under Norfolk to do a bit of harrying to encourage the Scots. Norfolk does a reasonably pitiful job, getting no further than Kelso before poor logistics forced him back. But nonetheless, 
In the Aesop's parable, Henry is being the wind rather than the sun, and as Aesop would have it, the sun did a better job of getting the man to take his coat off, and all Henry was achieving was to have the Scots pull that coat closer around them. Francis I, meanwhile, was absolutely delighted. Yippee, he said in French. Or actually, he is supposed to have said to the English ambassador, Your Majesty had begun with the Scots, and the Scots have given you your hands full. It is very unlikely, again, James wanted a war, but the English had invaded his country. So now his blood was up, and the blood of his councillors was in a similar location, and the cry was that all is ours, the English are but heretics. So, it was in the spirit of revenge, conquest and religious war that a Scottish army of 15,000 men was gathered. And in the last week of November 1542, they crossed the English border into Cumberland, burning as they went. No one had been expecting them to call, so they could have high expectations of a thoroughly enjoyable bit of burning and pillaging. In command was one Robert, Lord Maxwell, a distinguished councillor of James V in his late forties. Sadly, he'd been appointed rather at the last minute, so he was not entirely in control. But since no English army was ready to receive them, that didn't really matter, and he could expect to revenge his father by killing a few English. His father, by the way, had died at Flodden. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thomas Walton, captain of Carlisle, was on the other side of the border when the news reached him that the Scots were up. Walton was a gnarled, experienced, skilled man of the borders. His family had been a well-known and respected member of the gentry of Westmoreland and Cumberland, for donkey's years, time immemorial. Also in his forties, he'd spent most of his life doing what the gentry did, serving his local magnate, in this case the Cliffords and the Purses. Now, I say respected, I did not say liked. Thomas Wharton was a pretty rough bloke who argued with his neighbours and was no more popular with his tenants. But unlike the northern magnates who Henry and Cromwell pushed aside, Dacre, Clifford, Percy, he was competent. And so, after Percy died from 1537, Wharton worked directly to the Crown as Warden of the Marches as a rather neat example of that developing relationship between King and Gentry. When we spoke about this a few episodes ago, about Cromwell's policy towards the North, there was mention of the theory that the changes in the North may indeed have encouraged a closer relationship between people and state and pushed the magnates into a service role, but may have damaged the defence of the North. Well... The defences of the North were about to be tested, so we'll see about that. Wharton probably didn't worry too much about the news at first, because the news came from the debatable land, a patch of land on the border that both kings of Scotland and England swore blind belonged to them. It was a notably lawless and violent place in a lawless and violent society of the borders, so it might have taken him a while to realise that this was something a bit different. He was probably always getting news from the debatable land. 
Either way, the resources he had available were pretty limited, but it's unlikely Wharton worried much about either. He was confident that a hundred Englishmen was worth five hundred Scots every day. As it happens, this was not just a figure of speech, since 3,000 men were all that Wharton could scrape together. So if one Englishman was not to prove worth five Scots in this particular situation, he would be toast. Could I just, though, distance myself from any implication, by the way, that I would share such a divisive philosophy? As far as I'm concerned, the exchange rate should always be one English equals one Scot. Just saying, that's all. I don't want any trouble. Anyway, I've got hung up, so let me get on with it. It's 24th of November, 1542. As the Scots came charging over the debatable land, they suddenly realised to their horror there was an English force on the top of the hill ahead of them. It was puny, one-fifth of their size, but it was coherent, and it was commanded by a nasty-looking bloke. And look, Maxwell was barely in control, so when Wharton sent his small cavalry force to charge the Scots, there was chaos in their ranks. Maxwell tried to get control, dismounted, reformed as well as they could, and tried to hold the banks of the River Esk but they were nonetheless forced back, found themselves trapped between river and the moss, the peat bog. Many tried to flee and were cut down or caught and drowned in the moss. In the end, about 1,200 Scots were captured, including two earls and 500 gentlemen, and who knows how many died. Before we move on, just a further note about Wharton's career, because it's quite interesting, actually. We tend to see the dramatic 16th century as one of terribly difficult split loyalties where the poor people of England were pulled from pillar to post in agonies of conscience. The poor Protestants are pulled and suffering agonies at the bishop's hands under Henry and then with Mary. The poor old Catholic recusant families harbouring their brave priests and so on and so forth. Thomas Wharton, a bit like the Duke of Norfolk, had one guiding principle and that was loyalty to the king. Where we can see his religious affiliation, he seems to be quite traditional. So in 1549, for example, he would vote against the act to allow priests to marry. But that came second to his loyalty to the king, and he has a successful career, whatever monarch was on the throne. His son would have rather more religious sensibility, but would also die in his bed. My point is that for many in England throughout all these shenanigans, the French ambassador was right to say that most of the English would worship Muhammad if the English king told them to do so. Solway Moss also, we might suggest, gives the lie to the idea that Henry and Cromwell had damaged the defence of the north in England. It isn't quite as simple as that though. It is worth saying that using the revenge argument to justify launching an invasion could be used at any time by either England or Scotland. There were constant raids by either side over the borders. It's impossible to have a real, they started it sir, argument here. Just doesn't work. In the world of constant raids, therefore, it's not just about these big set pieces when we talk about the defence of the North. The argument is that in some key places along the English border, English manors were more vulnerable to those casual raids. So, fair enough. But it's also clear that English defence remained robust, and in this case, remained very effective. Now, the continually repeated story is that when James V died a couple of weeks later, on the 6th of December 1542, that he died of grief from the defeat at Solway Moss. Clearly, this is utter tripe, but gets repeated everywhere, including me here now. I'm so sorry. James V had been ill just before the battle. He fell ill again after it, and he died aged just 30. He left a wife, Mary of Guise, and a titchy tiny daughter called Mary, known to history as Mary Queen of Scots. Now, Scotland was subjected again to the misfortune of another minority, this time with an aggressive English king to the south. 
Henry's reaction was to think that he could control Scotland and keep them out of the war with France by using third parties rather than direct intervention and invasion. Now, it's interesting this. Again, Henry's policy is heavily criticised on the one hand as being bullying, overbearing and aggressive, and on the other as being doomed by a reluctance to invest sufficient military resources, being wildly optimistic and indecisive. More than one historian says that at this point, Scotland was defenceless and used words like, there's no doubt that an invasion would have brought Scotland under Henry's control. Seriously? Do they not know that Edward I, or indeed the entire history of English invasions of Scotland, which repeatedly proved that the English were incapable of controlling Scotland by force? And anyway, Henry didn't want to conquer Scotland. What he did want was that his Edward and James and Mary's little Mary should marry, and in time that would bring the two crowns under one dynasty, his dynasty. He had no desire to launch an invasion of Scotland at this point. He wanted to be fighting in France, not Scotland. He wanted the back door closed. Oh, and again, now a marriage between Edward and Mary was a genuine possibility. So he released all the captured Scottish lords, Lord Maxwell among them, and sent them back to Scotland on condition they support the English cause. This is, fair enough, an optimistic bit. The Earl of Angus went as well, and he actually married Maxwell's daughter as it happens. Meanwhile, it was the Earl of Arran that became the regent, and Arran was the one that had to walk that tricky line between the pro-French Catholic Cardinal Beaton and the pro-English and Protestants. He seemed to accept Henry's proposal for the future at this point, supported by the likes of Angus, and so everything seemed to be going Henry's way. But Henry was suspicious of Arran's real intentions, and rightly so, and he sent Ralph Sadler north to be ambassador to Scotland. Remember Ralph Sadler? faithful member of Cromwell's household. Sadler made Henry aware that it was a snake pit in Scotland now. He explained the three main parties. The heretics and the English lords, that is the governor and his partakers. Another, which is called the scribes and Pharisees, which look to France, namely the clergy and their allies. And a third, which was neuter and would take the stronger side in any business. In July 1543, the Scottish negotiators agreed to the Treaty of Greenwich with England, which committed to the marriage between Edward and Mary, and that when she was ten years old, Mary would come south to live at the English court. And so still, everything did seem to be going Henry's way. Henry was still suspicious of the Scottish commitment, but he allowed himself to be convinced that everything was sorted, and he proceeded to war with France, which we'll cover uh, next time. But actually, Henry's instincts had been quite right. As regent of Scotland, Arran was playing his own game, the game he thought best for Scotland, unsurprisingly. He returned firmly to the Conservative Catholic fold, released David Beaton from prison. Meanwhile, the Earl of Lennox landed in Scotland with French soldiers and support, and Henry's plan was officially in flames. In desperation, Henry now turned to the Earl of Angus to be his man, the man who would deliver his strategy and persuade the Scots to abide by the Treaty of Greenwich. It was a forlorn hope. Angus was doomed to failure, and by the end of 1543, the Scottish Parliament had repudiated the English treaties, reconfirmed the old alliance with an A. But really, blink and you would miss the next act in this drama at any point. Lennox, the guy who'd come with the soldiers from France, now fell out with Arran because he was disappointed in the actual amount of power he had gained by his support for Arran. And while he crossed over to the English side and asked for support from Henry... He might have met Angus going the other way now to Aaron's side. 
What we have really is a civil war with England as an interested party, a bit like Henry III in the 13th century. But whereas back in the 13th century, men like Walter Coman and Alan Durwood held back their hands from violence, and Henry III, whatever his faults, was essentially a man of peace and also held back from military intervention, Henry VIII was a man in search of dominance and control, and Lennox and Aaron were likewise prepared to draw blood. And don't forget, we now have a religious element, with Beaton keeping up the pressure to remove Protestants from power and persecute them wherever he could find them. Beaton had also agreed the so-called secret bond with a group of Scottish lords to stop any idea of a marriage between Mary and Edward. So Henry now turned to Edward Seymour, the Earl of Hertford, Jane Seymour's brother. Livid with what he saw as Scots perfidy, reneging on the Treaty of Greenwich, Henry reached for the gun. He would convince the Scots of the love between Edward and Mary by burning their country. This is what is called, therefore, the rough wooing, which I think is a phrase invented by Walter Scott. Henry told Hartford he would show the Scots the consequences of their resistance and convince them that marriage was the best solution by burning and pillaging the borders up to and including St Andrews, so a good deal more than the borders then. To his credit, Hartford argued this was the wrong course, not because he was against the idea of burning and killing for his monarch and the greater glory of his country. Pretty much everyone in Tudor days in Scotland, England, France, Spain, the world, wherever, saw that as the rightful way of the world. He just thought that it wouldn't work, that the Scots needed persuading, not kicking. He suggested that it's unlikely that burning and pillaging would make somebody love you. He suggested capturing a few strong points, maybe, and using these as a base to invade later, if needed, and meanwhile, just keep out the French. But the king was in control of strategy. He did agree to go only as far as Edinburgh, rather than all the way to St Andrews, but Hartford must go. Given his orders, Hartford carried them out efficiently. He was a decent general. He attacked by sea and land, and by May was in Edinburgh, He ignored the castle, burned the town, and then he came home. This was a punitive raid, no more, no less, and joins the long list of English and Scottish punitive raids. I think we should continue with Scottish affairs to the end of Henry's reign, so let me go on. Hartford was essentially correct. His attack in 1544 just irritated the Scots, didn't cow them. They'd been in this situation plenty of times before. The raid did inspire Mary of Guise to make a bid for power to remove Arran as regent, but in this she was unsuccessful, although one day she would indeed get her wish. As 1544 turned into 45, the English continued to lead raids across the border, and in February the northern lord Ralph Ure, another long-standing northern English family, led 5,000 English and German mercenaries to be met at Ancrum Moor by a small Scottish force, led by the Earl of Angus this time. The Scots ran off, and Ralph and his army set off in hot pursuit, smelling blood. The blood they smelled was their own. As they came over the hill, they met the main Scottish army. The running away thing had been a trick. In the resulting counter-attack by the Scots, the element of surprise and the longer Scottish pikes did their job. Yore was killed, the English scattered, and Scottish arms could celebrate a victory. And it not only fed Scottish confidence but fed French confidence and Francis now raised the prospect of a joint Franco-Scottish invasion from Scotland. For all intents and purposes, the Battle of Ancrum Moor ended Henry VIII's interventions in Scotland, though it did not bring the rough wooing to an end. We still have another chapter in that story under Edward VI. But essentially, by the time of Henry's death, the idea of a willing marriage between Edward and Mary was dead as a dodo. 
Scotland's religious future was far from settled, but a man called John Knox at this point enters the story. Cardinal David Beaton was as determined as the French Catholic Mary of Guise to stamp out heresy in Scotland, and his eye fell on one George Wishart. Wishart was a notable evangelical preacher, tramping the countryside with his message, and one of his admirers was a 30-year-old preacher and graduate of St Andrews University, John Knox. In 1545, Beaton had Wishart arrested, tried for heresy, and in 1546, he was strangled and burned. Retribution was swift. On the 29th of May, a local landowner and Protestant called John Leslie broke into St Andrew's Castle, killed David Beaton and hung his body from the castle walls. And so began a minor rebellion on the Fife coast, a rebellion of Protestant lords holding out in St Andrew's Castle, where in April 1547, John Knox himself joined them. By July, though, Mary of Guise had enlisted the help of the French and the castle was retaken and Knox chained to the seats of a galley in the French navy as a slave, condemned to row. He would be back. OK, so that, for the moment, is that with England and Scotland. As I say, it's not Henry's finest moment, maybe, but the depth of criticism from the likes of Scarisbrook, Rogers, Matusak seems a bit excessive. The accusation is that Henry had two opportunities, at one point a simple walk-in invasion after Solway Moss, and that he was too indecisive, seeking to instead put a pro-English Scottish party in power. And then, that secondly, there was this great chance to peacefully agree a marriage between Edward and Mary and achieve the 1603 solution early, two crowns united under one dynasty, and that Henry's bullying and aggressive tactics destroyed this opportunity. It seems a little inconsistent to me, that Henry was on the one hand not violent enough, and on the other hand too violent. The Scots had proved many times that England was incapable of conquering them by force, and Henry at no point planned or attempted to conquer Scotland militarily, and he was right to recognise that would have been futile. It seems to me that the Scots were never going to agree to the marriage between Edward and Mary. In the final analysis, though, Henry, unlike his namesake Henry III, had not proved a friend to Scotland. In one limited respect, he did achieve his objective. He kept the back door closed while he fought in France. But if there was a bigger opportunity, his clumsy and violent approach made certain that it failed. But you have to question if it really was an opportunity anyway. Next week, then, we will finally turn to the survived part of the old doggerel and to the third Queen Catherine of Henry's reign, Catherine Parr. Thanks to all of you for listening, to all my members and donators for their generosity, and to all of you on Facebook, website, and so on. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.